Hi, welcome to today's episode of Encyclopedia, the podcast that helps law students to bridge the gap between the study and practice of law. My name is Justine, and I'm joined by Ariane for today's episode. In this episode, we'll be having a chat with Philip Greenham, who specializes in construction law. Philip has been working in the construction law industry for over 35 years. He was previously a partner at Minta Ellison for 27 years, where he headed the construction practice for 13 of those years. He is a founding member of the Society of Construction Law Australia and is currently a member of the International Construction Projects Committee of the International Bar Association. Today, Philip works as an arbitrator where he consults people in their construction projects and ensures delivery of those projects with minimal disputes. Philip has also made significant contributions to government projects over the last 35 years. We'll be asking Philip a range of questions about construction law and about his personal experiences working in the industry. We hope you enjoy. Hi, Philip. Thank you so much for taking out the time of your day to join us and answering some of our interview questions. Um, we're going to get started now. Um, could you briefly introduce yourself to our viewers? Okay. Um, so, Philip Greenham. I've uh, been a construction lawyer for over 35 years. I was a um, science law graduate from Monash University. Uh, went to Leo Cusson Institute um, after graduating from Monash and then joined Alison Hewison and Whitehead as they then were um, after completing Leo Cusson. And then I remained at Alison Hewison and Whitehead and its successor, Minter Allison, for um, 33 years. Um, I think I was there in total. Um, and that was all of my professional working life um, as a lawyer. I was there. Um, as a law clerk, uh, junior lawyer, senior associate, and then a partner. And I left Minter Ellison at the end of 2016, and I now do a variety of things. I sit as an arbitrator. I still um, have a legal practice where I um, assist a small number of clients um, with legal issues. I'm also developing an IT product in relation to um, the intersection between legal principles and construction contracts and the administration of construction contracts. And I uh, am an executive fellow, an enterprise fellow at the University of Melbourne, where I um, lecture and also manage um, research in relation to issues which connect the law with the construction industry. Thank you for introducing yourself, Philip. Um, can you describe a little bit about uh, construction law for someone who doesn't know anything about it? Okay, um, construction law is really nothing more in my mind than applied contract and tort law. Now that's not to say that um, contract and tort law encompasses all of construction law because clearly you've got statutes which impact on it you've got the Australian consumer law and but it is primarily applied contract and tort law um, and the thing which makes construction law different if you like from other areas is its very very tight connection to a particular industry um, if you look at the way law firms practice and the way law firms organise themselves, for example, there are not many areas which focus on an industry. Most areas of legal activity focus on a 
um, a particular legal concept, property law, for example, taxation and the like. But construction is an example of where it focuses quite acutely on a particular industry. And so the real um, magic, the real thing which differentiates construction law from other areas of practice is that connection, that tight connection between the legal disciplines and the industry. And of course, a whole raft of things which flow from that, which include, for example, the terminology, the commercial behaviours, the historical context, the economic context, um, all of that moulds into uh, understanding and the effective deployment of construction law. That's awesome, Philip. Um, yeah, I remember you telling us some of these in class as well, and I found myself getting really interested about construction law thanks to your presentation. Um, <laughs> as a student, were you certain that construction law was the area you wanted to practice in? Yeah, as a student, Sorry. I mean, I, I started at Monash in 1976 and finished in 1983, and there was no subject of construction law offered at Monash, and I don't think there was a subject of construction law offered at that point anywhere in Australia. And I think the first offering of construction law as a subject was um, Professor uh, Professor Gerber, as she now is, um, when she was at the University of Melbourne and um, introduced the first construction law course in Australia. And I think that was about 25 years ago. So when I was a student, no, construction law um, was not on my mind. Indeed, what was on my mind when I was a student, because I wasn't a, uh, I didn't actually enjoy university all that much. And I wasn't um, a very successful law student. Um, I, I had other things on my mind, other things to do. And what I was really focused on um, was just getting a job, any job. And, uh, and it was, the, the economy wasn't in such good shape at that time and it wasn't easy to get a job. Uh, and that's why I found myself at Leo Cusson. And um, as Leo Cusson was coming to an end, again, I was looking for any job. And I was very, very lucky. Um, to secure a job with Alice and Hewson and Whitehead. Um, and in fact, the reason um, that I got an interview with um, Alice and Hewson and Whitehead, and I only found this out recently because I still um, keep in contact with the then managing partner of Alice and Hewson and Whitehead, Rob Stewart. Um, and he told me recently that the reason I got the interview was because um, during the vacation time at university, I had driven trams and he had never spoken to a tram driver before. Um, and that's why he decided to interview me for a job. Now, it was probably more than my tram driving credentials that then got me the job, but certainly they got me the interview. And the job that I was offered was... Um, and this was unusual at the time. I mean, when law graduates now enter practice, at least with first tier law firms, is that there's quite a structured way in which they move through various areas of practice in order to understand where they might um, be best suited. Um, when I got my job at Allison Hewson and Whitehead, there was no such structure. Um, you went into an area and that was really it. But because they offered me a job um, when they really didn't have a position, because the position that they advertised was given to someone else, but they were interested in me and offered me a job nonetheless. And they said that they would rotate me around four areas over the course of 12 months and see how things worked out. Um, the first area I worked in was workers' compensation. So I spent three months doing workers' compensation. The second area I worked in was construction law. And I waited for 30 odd years for them to move me to the third and fourth areas. Um, and it never happened. And so I just remained in construction law. And, and I, I very quickly 
um, came to love it. And I came to love it for two reasons. One reason was because the particular environment at Alice in Hewison and Whitehead in which I was working. At that time, um, construction law experts were few and far between. Um, and construction law had not generally distilled as a separate discipline that practitioners would practice. Um, and Frank Shelton was the partner at Allison Hewison and Whitehead who I uh, was working with during that second three months. And he was one of the few practitioners um, together with John Sharkey and others who were actually focusing on construction law. And the construction law practice at Allison Hewison and Whitehead at the time was one partner, Frank, um, one senior associate who spent half of his time doing construction work and a junior lawyer that came to be me. And so part of the, my enthusiasm for construction law was in fact because that small environment in which I then had the opportunity to develop an understanding and skills. And also because Frank Shelton, who later became Judge Shelton of the County Court, was such a terrific mentor and teacher. He was such a generous um, person to work for. Um, and the environment was um, just a terrific environment. I was given such independence very early on in my career, and I embraced that. Um, so, so the environment itself generated enthusiasm. But the other thing that Frank also did was he, um, at a very early stage, introduced me to the industry organisations that were connected with construction law. So the Housing Industry Association, for example, we did a lot of work for the Housing Industry Association, the Housing Guarantee Fund, which was the um, compulsory residential building insurer at the time. And um, even very early on, Frank um, offered me the opportunity to do one of his lectures at the University of Melbourne that he was doing at the time. So I got very um, early exposure to the connection point between the law and the construction industry. And that was really interesting. So it was really that experience which enlivened my interest and enthusiasm for construction law rather than thinking about it at all when I was at university. I didn't. Thank you for that. I think that was really interesting insight. Um, I think law students especially would like um, your little snippet about the fact that um, you weren't a particularly good uni student, but still managed to get yourself to be a partner <laughs> at a law firm. <laughs> yes. In fact, I, uh, I failed contract law first time round. Had to repeat it. Because I, I, I had other things on my mind at the time. There was much more to do than attend lectures. Yeah. yeah and I, I really liked your story that um, you got an interview because you were a tram driver. I think that really... Uh, drives the point that a lot of law firms are making that they're looking for people who are people with really well-rounded experiences rather than students who are just uh, like who have a lot of law experience like it's good but um, having those well-rounded experiences and having other opportunities really does make you stand out and I think um, you're a living um, example of that and I think that's really nice. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, your day-to-day -day life as a construction lawyer? Well, it, it changed significantly throughout the 30-odd years at Minter Ellison. And of course, now it's, it's completely different to what it was when I was at Minter Ellison. Um, one of the things that one of the, the most noticeable changes was for the first couple of years, you really have no idea what you're doing. Um, and you're, um, you know, you can be quite 
tense about that. I was going to say stressed, but you don't have to be stressed about it. You can be tense and anxious about it without being stressed about it. And I actually remember that um, I think when I was a second year lawyer, Frank Shelton went on sabbatical for three months. And so I was the only person there in the construction group then as a second year lawyer for three months. And that was um, nerve wracking, but a, a tremendous learning opportunity. So for the first, you know, two or three years, you really have no idea what you're doing. You're feeling a bit anxious about it all, but you are, you are absorbing and you are learning so much. You then go through a phase where there's still a lot you don't know. I mean, you never know everything. Um, and it's really a question of being comfortable about the fact that you don't know everything, um, but still being able to move ahead and deal with the problem at hand, even though you don't know everything. And so after those first couple of years, you know, you 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 feel more comfortable um, at that point in time. And, and I think this is quite different to practice now. I probably had um, most of my work was dispute work um, and I probably had 200 files that I managed at that point in time. And they were a mixture of um, magistrate court files, county court files, Supreme Court files, arbitration files, and files which weren't part of any formal dispute resolution process. Now for a practitioner today in the construction law area to be managing 200 files would be really quite unusual, but it was quite common then. And, and probably for, for the next you know, 10 years of my practice, um, that was, what I had, you know, 200 files um, in various dispute contexts. And as time marched on, I got more and more front end work. So I was doing contract drafting as well. And, um, you know, you might every day, you'd probably meet a client. Some, some days you'd have client meetings all day. Um, and, uh, and it could be a challenge then, at, you know, at the end of the day, after having had a full day of client meetings to process all of the information and everything that needed to be done as a result of those client meetings. Um, but then as time marches on, so, you know, by the time I became a partner after six years at, um, at Minter Ellison, so after about 10 years, you know, I'd, I'd already been a partner for four years, and um, you start to get involved in well, number one, you have more people working for you. So the group had grown. And so you're doing less hands-on work. You know, whereas when you're a junior to middle level lawyer, everything that you're doing is hands-on legal work. But then as you um, become a more experienced practitioner, you are doing less and less hands-on legal work and you're doing more and more management work. And that might be um, people management work just in terms of their own, you know, mentoring the junior lawyers in your group. It might be, um, overseeing the files that those junior lawyers are working on. Um, you've got a lot of firm management work that you're doing as well, business development and other, um, you know, you're on internal firm committees and the like. And probably, you know, by the, by the last five or six years um, of my time at Mitter Allison, I would say that 10 to 15% of my work was client facing legal work. And the rest of my work was um, management work. And indeed, after I left Mitter Ellison, one of the things I, I missed most was the mentoring of junior solicitors, because in the, in the very tail end of my time there, I could sometimes spend, you know, all day, you know, three days a week, just um, talking to junior lawyers who would be coming into my office, um, wanting to talk about a file that they were managing and decisions which had to be made, strategic planning to be done in relation to the file and the like. So, you know, the practice changes over time. And um, the way I describe the practice 
when I began would be very different um, to the way someone would experience the commencement of their practice today. And if you were a young construction lawyer today, starting at a firm like Mitchell Ellison, your experience would be very, very different to what mine was. You wouldn't have personal responsibility for 200 files, for example. Um, you know, it, it might be a little while before you had personal responsibility for any particular file. Uh, you might have personal responsibility for a particular range of activities in relation to a file, but not in relation to a file overall. So the, the way in which um, the law is practiced is very, very different. Thanks for that, Philip. I really, um, yeah, I really resonated with the advice that you gave just now. And during our construction law class, you said you should, we should feel tense, but not stressed about not knowing everything, finding comfort in not having, knowing everything, which I think is really important because so many of us law students are always I would say overthinkers. Yeah. So I can just. Yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the, the most important things that a young a law graduate can learn. And that is to how to become comfortable in a perpetual state of ignorance. Um, because as I say, you'll never know everything. There'll always be someone out there who knows something that you don't know. Um, and if you don't find that point of comfort um, in that state of ignorance, then you, you, you won't have a comfortable professional life. That's very reassuring, Philip. <laughs> um, yeah, I did have another question for you. Um, you mentioned that, you know, in the past, you would be in charge of like 200 plus files at once, which is super uncommon for a practicing lawyer today. So that what's changed since then? And this kind of segues into the next question as well. What's the most difficult aspect of your job as a construction lawyer right now? Well, I think what has changed since then is that if you're looking at dispute work, for example, um, the economics of disputes has changed dramatically. Um, I mean, I mentioned that a number of my files would have been in the magistrate's court, and I think that the monetary limit in the magistrate's court at the time was perhaps $20,000. And I might have had you know, 30 magistrate's court files. So that's 30 disputes um, where people were fighting over an amount of money less than $20,000. Now, if, um, if someone came to me today and was talking about commencing formal legal proceedings over the pursuit of $20,000, you'd advise them um, very strongly against it because um, to be able to run a formal legal dispute in a way which represents a net positive return on a $20,000 dispute, even if you have absolute victory, um, is impossible. And so I think the financial dynamics have changed um, dramatically. Um, so you, you, there just isn't the volume of dispute files to begin with. If you look at the number of cases in the construction list as it, or the building list as it then was when I started in the Supreme Court, the technology and construction list now, technology engineering and construction list in the Supreme Court now, um, at each month there would be a callover of all of the cases in the building list and you would go up and it was, it was terrific because as a junior lawyer, we did not brief this work out to barristers. Um, I would go up to the to the practice court, um, the building list in the Supreme Court every month, and I would have, you know, 13, 14, 15 files um, to get through in the practice court on that day, and you'd sit there all day, um, and your cases, you know, you might have case number two, case number eight, case number 15, so you'd be sitting there watching more experienced people on their feet in front of the judge in charge, and you'd learn so much, it was tremendous, and you'd spend the whole day up there, um, so there, there could have been 30 or 40 cases in the Supreme Court building cases list. Now, 
there might be four or five. Um, so the whole the whole economics of large construction disputes has changed. So I think that's one thing that has changed. I think another thing that has changed is, um, and this is more so perhaps in larger firms and smaller firms, but it's the financial dynamics of firms. Now there is, um, they are enormous machines and they are enormous machines that you just have to keep, you know, it's like a car and, and a petrol tank. You just have to keep filling them up and keep filling them up. And, um, and that influences the kind of work which um, those firms will do. Um, you know, the kind of work which I was doing uh, when I began at Allison, Hewison and Whitehead, Minter Allison just wouldn't look at now because it, it, it would not be financially viable, wouldn't be um, appropriate for the client. You know, they would have to pay too much to get that work done. So it's, it's both the question of the economics of the dispute landscape and the economics of running a legal business. I think, which have um, been the most significant changes. Now, you asked me about the most challenging or the most difficult thing. I think um, it's work-life balance. Um, and uh, and one of my ex-partners from Minter Allison, who's no longer there also, didn't like the expression work-life balance because um, uh, she was of the view that if you're a lawyer, particularly a lawyer in a busy practice, there is no work-life balance. And so um, to try and pursue work-life balance is illusory um, and you just set yourself up um, to fail. Um, but there is something, you know, you have to find a way to um, be able to keep the non-working elements of your personality alive and nurtured and also to focus on those around you, your family or whatever it might, whoever it might be that um, you have those connections with um, because you can't lose those connections. Um, and it was really juggling um, that dynamic um, that I found most challenging. So it wasn't so much the legal practice. There was nothing in the legal practice I really found that challenging. Um, you know, you have challenging moments, but there was nothing that was chronically challenging. Um, what was, you know, more challenging over a period of time was that balancing really home life and the family life. And particularly, and, and I was lucky, um, you know, I'm, I'm a man and it was easier for a man, a father at that point in time than a mother, for example. Um, uh, and my wife was working, but we were lucky enough to be able to have a nanny, but we had three children under five. Um, and so, and, and that was at a time when I was a young partner um, at Mitter Ellison. And so there was probably three or four years there, which were very, very tough. But the toughness wasn't to do with the legal work. It was to do with managing the intensity of that dynamic. Thanks for that, Philip. Um, so leading on from what you said, you said the most difficult part is about balancing your time with your family and all your relationships. So how do you personally do it? I got up very early in the morning. Uh, <laughs> so I would, um, I spent you know, probably 25 years uh, getting up at somewhere between four and five o'clock in the morning. Uh, and I'd be in the office um, within half an hour. Uh, and uh, that's how I would do it. And I would find that those hours in the morning were the most productive hours of the day for me, particularly as I became a more senior lawyer and there were more demands on your time during the day. Uh, and that enabled me, I tried to get home, particularly when I had a young family, I tried to get home, um, you know, for dinner before the children went to bed, at least, you know, three nights a week. So I, I would be leaving the office at somewhere between half past five and half past six, which is uh, that, you know, that time, that time um, rhythm is a little different to the way many lawyers work, who perhaps 
come in a little later and finish a little later. But that's how I manage it. That's how I tried to preserve the time to do the other things that I uh, wanted to do. Um, and I, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed that intensity of the work. I mean, one, one thing about um, being a lawyer in the environment I was in, it was very, very intense. And I thrived on that, absolutely thrived on it. I loved it. And I still do. But you did have to find the space to do other things. Um, and that's how I did it. Awesome. Thank you, Philip. Um, I also wanted to ask you, what has been a highlight in your career? Like, what did you find the most exciting project or memorable case that you've ever worked on? Okay, so, I mean, there's a few highlights. Um, one of them is really watching young lawyers grow, particularly when you have a young lawyer um, that grows and either becomes a partner in the firm or um, goes and becomes an in-house counsel somewhere and, you know, carves out their own career and like, that's very, very satisfying. But in terms of cases I worked on, um, the, 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 the one which I'd, I'd say is probably the highlight was um, an arbitration. And, and what I'm saying now is on the public record, because of course, arbitrations are generally private, but um, this arbitration found its way into the court system. And so um, what I'm saying is on the public record, but it was an arbitration about the Murren Murren nickel cobalt plant in um, Western Australia, which was a plant which was um, being developed by Andrew Forrest. Um, and this was before Andrew Forrest um, found his success in his current iron ore uh, ventures. And we were acting for Fluor, um, an American EPC contractor um, and uh, difficulties had arisen between Fleur and Andrew Forrest about the design and building of the plant and um, an arbitration was commenced and that arbitration um, at the time was the largest construction arbitration in Australia. Um, it lasted over five years. Um, the arbitration hearing which was held in two parts was on the basis of a chess clock hearing and it was the first chess clock arbitration in Australia. So there were a number of firsts associated with this. And at its peak, um, we had a team of um, 20 to 25 lawyers at Minter Ellison working on that and a team of 20 barristers working on that. And so it was an enormous, apart, apart from the complexity and in intricacy of the legal issues, it was an enormous project to manage. Um, and uh, we had two partners um, working on that matter, myself and Peter Wood, who now heads up the construction division at Minter Ellison. Um, and I, uh, I was in the very lucky position of effectively managing the legal strategy and managing the project, if you like. And, um, and so I could call upon all of those resources that I mentioned to work very hard at, um, at doing what they needed to do. Um, and it was, it was very, very intense. Um, and that intensity, even though there was ebb and flow, that intensity lasted for five years. Um, but, and, and that is probably now, if I remember rightly, that probably finished 10 years ago, or maybe, maybe a little more than that now. And um, I still catch up with people um, who worked on that matter. Um, and some of them are still at Minter Allison. And even though it was intense and even though people got fatigued, um, they still say to me, gee, I wish we had another one of those. Because the, um, the esprit de corps, which developed around that matter, 
uh, the collegiality, the learning, the highs and the lows. It, it was it was such a rewarding thing to be involved in. And as I say, whilst the intensity was at times you know, fatiguing, people long for it. One of the one of the most interesting highlights of that was we had um, December one year, and we had a. Um, uh, submissions which had to be delivered to the arbitrators by a particular date. Um, and there was, it was a panel of three arbitrators and they were drawn from around the world. Um, one Australian, one Englishman and one Frenchman. And um, as is always the case, you're always scrambling at 11.59 to produce you know, the last version of your closing submission and whatever. And um, this had to be delivered before Christmas and it had to be physically delivered. So we had to get this physically delivered to Paris before Christmas. And in terms of our time for production, um, we could no longer secure delivery by courier. Um, and so the only way we could secure delivery within time was for someone to fly it to Paris. And so um, here we were a few days before Christmas uh, and the submissions were very lengthy. They occupied a suitcase um, of lever arch folders, these submissions. And so we um, sent an email around to the 20 odd lawyers walking on, working on this and to say, who would like a plane trip to, had to go to London and Paris, who would like a plane trip to London and Paris for Christmas? Um, and we got a couple of takers. Uh, one young lawyer put their hand up and said, yes, 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 yes. And so she was going to do it. And, and she only had, you know, we only had, I think, a day to get everything in order to get her to the airport. Um, turned out um, she'd lost her passport and we had to um, get an urgent passport replacement from the Department of Foreign Affairs, which we were able to get. Um, and she got to the airport within hours of the plane taking her off and off she went to London and Paris to deliver the submissions. So, you know, there was a whole lot of really fun, interesting stuff associated with it. So that, that would be the highlight. That sounds like a very uh, stressful situation. Um, I'm glad that you guys managed to get the paperwork there. Yep. Yeah. And it was stressful, but it's, you know, particularly when you have that collegiate atmosphere, the stress is in a sense fun in itself. It's a very positive way to look at it. I'm glad that um, <laughs> you have that outlook. Um, what kind of skills do you, would you say that you need to work um, in construction law? Okay. Well, um, you know, if I look at the mix of people that I managed um, at Midrealis, you know, there were, as you would expect, there were a variety of skills. You have those people who are excellent in terms of black letter law. You know, they remember all the cases. Um, they have a very sharp legal mind. You have other people who can um, digest an enormous volume of factual material, because one of the things with construction disputes is there is an enormous volume of factual material. So they can get through that, they can sift through it, and they can distill the essence um, of what's important from that great factual material. Um, you've got to be able to manage process and projects. I mean, every file you're running, whether it's a dispute or whether it's drafting a contract for a front end project and the like, it's a project. So you've got to be able to project manage, you've got to be able to um, uh, manage people. But above all, above all, you have to be able to solve problems because everything that comes um, in front of you is a, you know, a problem. The reason that the person has brought it to you is there's, there's some, something which has to be resolved here, a problem which has to be resolved. And you have to be able to, to come up with strategies to solve that problem. Um, and 
you know, often enough, it's a question of thinking of a slightly different strategy, you know, not applying the same strategy that you applied yesterday, particularly in the dispute context where, you know, it's, it's got as much to do with the tactics of how you manage the dispute. And that's not just a question of, you know, the, where the legal um, uh, weight might lie, but it's also a question about, you know, the way in which you engage in conversations, the way in which you negotiate and the like. So I think probably at the top of the list is, you know, an analytical mind and a problem solving ability. And you'll see that, that those two particular skills, which I put at the top of the list, aren't peculiar to lawyers and, and don't, and, and they're not necessarily taught explicitly as part of a law course. They might be things that you develop and you practice as part of your law course, but they're not explicitly taught as part of a law course. That makes a lot of sense. Mm, I'm, I mean, I think you've kind of partially answered that, but do you have any other um, tips for aspiring construction lawyers to help them stand out when they're applying for clerkships and internships? And how would you recommend getting some of the skills that you've recommended? Well, I think um, in terms of when you're applying for a job um, as a new graduate um, and you want to stand out, I, I, I don't think that the task is any different for a construction lawyer compared to any other lawyer. And I think the first thing, and I might be out of touch when I say this, but my impression is that the overwhelming number of graduates from law schools see the, the prize that they're seeking to achieve is a place in a first tier law firm. And you know anything else is kind of the bronze or silver medal rather than the gold medal. Um, and I think that that is, I mean, I understand it to a certain extent, but I think it's an enormous mistake because you know there's only a small percentage of graduates that will find um, initially find that opportunity. And so if, if, if you have, you know, narrowly set your sight on that opportunity as representing success and representing the gold medal, then you're potentially going to be disappointed. And you ought not be disappointed because there are such an enormous variety of ways to practice the law, first thing. And the other thing I think to bear in mind as a graduate who might be trying to secure that gold medal is the degree of randomness that is associated with whether you actually achieve that result in the short term or not. And just because you might not secure that position that you might be really longing for doesn't mean that you have failed and doesn't and it doesn't represent any rational judgment on who you are or your ability because there is so much randomness about it. I mean, law firms get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of applications and it is their HR departments that go through them in the first instance, making a decision about who is going to get interviewed by the partners in the firm. And that first cull might be a cull from, you know, 700 plus applications to maybe 100 people who are going to be interviewed. So um, at that point, six out of seven people are being put to one side on the basis of whatever criteria a HR department is applying to those people. So, you know, and, and there is there is such a degree of 
randomness about what criteria might be applied at that point and whether it happens to be the first application that the person who's looking at it is looking at or the hundredth when they've got fatigued so first thing is broaden your, your thinking about what represents success and don't personalize um, the um, not getting that prize first time round. Second thing I'd say is in your applications, you, you, you and I, in the tail end of my time at Midrellis, and I read lots of applications, I was interviewing people. And um, I mean, I was so grateful that I wasn't looking for a job now and that I was looking for a job when I was because the applications which come through now, you know, people have done so much to try and demonstrate what a fully engaged and fully rounded person they are. They've done this, they've done that, they've been on this committee, they've been on that committee. And I had nothing like that. You know, I had tram driver um, on mine. Um, but to a certain extent, everyone now has that really long list of a full CV. And, you know, it can become a bit ho-hum to a certain extent because it's there's nothing in it which has one person stand out from another. And so it's it's finding what it is about you that is so interesting and so unique and finding a way to present that to the person who's opening the letter and it might be the 100th letter they're opening so that it captures their attention. And it's telling that part of the story about you as a person which will capture someone's attention. Um, and the last thing I'd say is that even if you don't succeed in getting that first job which you want, remember that there's at the end of first year, at the end of second year, at the end of third year as a, as a lawyer, there are opportunities to move laterally. And indeed, many of the best recruits, which I made um, when I was in charge of recruitment for the constru construction group at Minters, were um, lateral hires at a second, third, fourth year level rather than graduate hires. So don't despair. If you miss out first time round, there's always an opportunity a year or two down the track. Thank you, Philip. I think uh, a lot of the law students would be very um, reassured by that advice. And I think it, it definitely restores a lot of hope, I think, um, especially for those who just don't have uh, the experiences or the grades that they hope that they would have by the end of their degree. So thank you very much for that advice. That was definitely very nice to hear and reassuring. Pleasure. And I think um, one of our final questions is going to be about um, the future of construction law. Uh, are there any major developments within the industry that may impact on work as a construction lawyer? And where do you think uh, construction law will go in the future? Well, a general comment first. One is about history. And I don't know whether you've noticed this um, in your studies of the law, and I didn't when I was studying the law, but there is so much, um, if you look at the development of the common law, and the common law is, is such an interesting thing to look at how it develops and how it evolves in fits and starts. You know, it can be languid on a particular issue for quite some period of time. And then there can be some um, energetic evolution um, on a particular principle and the like. And if you look at how, um, and when I talk about energetic evolution, sometimes it takes, you know, 25, 50 years for there to be energetic evolution. So energetic has a slightly different 
um, meaning in, in uh, the question of the development of the common law. But if you look at the development of the common law, so much of it has taken place in the context of construction cases, because often there is so much to lose in construction disputes. And so there, there is a real vibrancy to the development of the common law and its connection with construction cases. Um, you know, the look that the, the um, doctrine of liquidated damages and penalties. I mean, most of the cases in relation to that will come out of construction law, for example. And so that's that's the history. And I think that will also be the future. And, and one example of where you see that in the future, and I think this is one of the areas where there's the opportunity, the continuing opportunity for energetic evolution um, in legal principles, which is taking place through in the construction law arena. And that is the principles of good faith. To what extent is good faith, the obligation to um, behave with good faith implied into every contract? in Australian jurisprudence? I think the answer to that question at the moment is no, it is not implied into every contract. It is implied into some contracts in some contexts in relation to some clauses. Um, but if you look at America, for example, now, um, and I think now um, the restatement of contract law in America now has um, the obligation to behave in good faith implied into every contract. But before that was embodied in the restatement, it was a development in the common law Americas in America. So America was, you know, far ahead of where Australia is, and Australia is ahead of where England is um, on the question of, you know, when is there an implied term of good faith? And I think that's an example of an era, uh, an area where there will be. Um, development in the construction law arena. The other area is in relation to, you know, the interpretation of contracts um, and bearing in mind that, you know, the fundamental task of the court when you're interpreting a contract, construing a contract is to ascertain the objective intention of the parties. And um, there's been some recent cases where courts have pulled rabbits out of the hat in the way in which they have almost overlooked the explicit words on the page to speculate what might have been the objective intention of the parties and to um, give effect to that surmised objective intention rather than what might appear to be the meaning from the express words on the page. And that um, greater flexibility and creativity in um, interpretation of contracts is something that's really being um, developed through construction law as well. So I think, you know, construction law has been and will continue to be a very energetic area of the evolution of the common law generally. Thank you, Philip. That was actually really exciting. It made me want to go and think about construction law as a career in the future, perhaps. Um, that's all the questions that we've prepared. We've got some questions from students via our social media for you to answer, just to um, what are your thoughts? First one, what are your thoughts on the um, Opal Tower lawsuits? So Opal Tower and, and La Crosse, for example, and I think La Crosse is, um, you know, further advanced in uh, the journey of the legal process than the Opal Tower ones. But um, they're both fascinating um, examples of a close connection point between social policy and the law and the extent to which your views about appropriate policy outcomes ought to be reflected in the law. 
Um, because you know what you have at the end of the day is um, a whole, a large number of individuals, many individuals who aren't necessarily wealthy, um, who will be burdened with a very significant burden, um, the cost of dealing with very serious physical defects in their building, um, unless the law provides them with some means of redress. And um, uh, one of the things I uh, do is I lecture at the University of Melbourne as well. And we've just finished a, um, a series on construction law. And the last day of that, we have a panel discussion um, where we bring in um, representatives of the insurance industry, building surveyors, et cetera, to talk about issues. And the issue we spoke about um, this year was the extent to which the current legal rules provide meaningful, convenient solutions for those individuals at the end of the burden chain, if you like, who will suffer the burden of the consequences of these unfortunate buildings, unless the legal system provides them with a solution. So, and, and does the legal system provide them with a solution? Is it a convenient solution? Is it a fair solution? And I think that there's um, uh, not a lot of clarity around the answers to those questions at the moment. Um, and I think it's a real challenge for the legal system as to whether it will be able to provide a solution. Because if it doesn't provide a solution, it loses credibility. Um, and if it loses credibility, then people lose respect for it. Um, and so, you know, ultimately it has to provide a credible, convenient solution. Now, whether that actually occurs in the context of the Opal Tower lawsuits or whether it fails in that context and we have to, um, watch the law evolve a little bit more or perhaps statutory intervention. Um, and it's interesting, this is where, you know, proportionate liability, which um, was introduced really at the behest of insurers um, to look after the commercial viability of insurers and really did not pay any attention at all to managing what might be the prejudicial impact on the final user of our built environment. Um, is you know that regime is perhaps now going to be um, the blowtorch is going to be put to it um, because the proportionate liability regime could undermine um, uh, the ability of uh, those apartment owners to enjoy success. So I think the Opal Tower lawsuits and the Lacrosse lawsuit, you know, they are fascinating to watch, um, and I'm not convinced that we will see them deliver appropriate social outcomes yet, but they might be part of the journey towards the system being reformed so that better social outcomes are delivered. And our next question from a student is um, a student who's studying law and civil engineering, and they wonder if this combination of studies can be beneficial in practicing construction law. It's, um, it's an interesting question. Um, uh, I think I mentioned that I, I did science law um, at Monash and at the time I think Monash was the only university that offered science law and it was quite an unusual combination at the time. Um, combined degrees now and also you know engineering law um, was I think even less common at the time and I, I first encountered dual engineering law graduates probably after about 10 years at Minter so um, you know maybe in the mid to late 80s um, and at that time they were quite a um, novel 
Beast, a, a joint engineering law graduate, and they attracted a lot of attention. And people had this idea, oh, they'd be great in engineering disputes because they have this engineering perspective as well. There are now, you know, there are now so many dual grad, dual, dual degree, dual discipline graduates around. It's not so uncommon. Um, so it's not as if an engineering law graduate um, stands out so starkly as they might have in the past. Um, but there's no doubt um, they are of interest. What is, um, and this might be discouraging to the student who perhaps asked this question, but what is of more interest is people who have practiced as an engineer for a period of time. And um, you know, there are now a number of those. So, and typically it might've been five years or so that someone might've practiced as an engineer and then decides either that perhaps they didn't have a law degree and they went and did a law degree or they were dual qualified, did engineering first and then came. Um, those people are um, of real interest um, to law firms when they're recruiting um, because they have, I mean, one of the things as a construction lawyer and one of the things which lawyers can get heavily criticised for by the construction industry is because they don't have the ability to think other than as lawyers. Um, and if you've done, you know, five years working as an engineer before you started working as a lawyer, you, you've got a completely different um, pattern of thinking potentially than you might have, have if you started as a lawyer. And that can be of real interest. And you've also got you know, uh, that intimate knowledge of the, the real world context of the problems which are coming to be solved by you. So, you know, engineering law graduates who have practiced as an engineer for a period uh, are of real interest. I, I might mention too, there was um, a little while ago, someone said to me um, that they thought that there were only two university courses which disassembled your brain and reassembled it so that at the end of the course, the way in which you thought and the way in which you analysed problems was completely different. And they said the two courses which they thought did that were engineering and law. Thank you very, very much for your candid and enthusiastic responses. That's all the questions we have for you today. We okay. really enjoyed having you as a guest. Thank you very, very much for your time again, Philip. Appreciate Pleasure. It. Okay, thank you. If you enjoyed this interview and would like to learn more about other areas of the law, visit our website at encyclopedia.org. That's E-N-C-Y-C-L-A-W-P-E-D-I-A.org. Please also follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn and Instagram to stay up to date with our latest interviews and release dates. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time.